Hey, this is Greg. And Zach. Welcome back to the Harvestgate podcast. This week, we begin our values series that we'll be visiting periodically over the coming weeks and months to give you a better understanding of how we will strive to operate as an organization and what values will guide the decisions we make and the actions we take. Those five values are Jesus-centered, discipleship-driven, community-oriented, missionally-minded, and kingdom-focused. This week, we'll be taking a deep dive into our first value, Jesus-centered. And Zach, before we talk about how it applies specifically to Harvestgate, what does being Jesus-centered really mean? Yeah, so one of the ways that we would say this is that we believe that Jesus is the foundation upon which all truth is built, that all scripture points to him, and that he is the full revelation of who God is. Um. And this really shouldn't be a problem for anyone uh, because Jesus is like God and God is like Jesus because they are one and the same. Uh, so we, we say that, uh, that we are Jesus-centered and I think that there's a, an important distinction to be made. Uh, oftentimes when I do premarital counseling with people, mm-hmm. I, I ask the question, uh, how does... Um, how does faith, what role does faith play in your relationship? And I think almost every time that I've done this, people respond, well, my faith is first, it's most important, and then my spouse, and then my kids, and you know, whatever. Um, And I, I usually push back, I understand what it is that they're saying, that their faith is incredibly important to them. But I challenge them to, to shift their thinking, and you might be thinking that this is kind of semantics, but I, I think that it really has profound implications to this. But I, I challenge them to, to shift their thinking to having their faith be center in their life. Uh, much like the sun is the center of uh, our solar system and mm-hmm. everything revolves around that. If you put something first... Uh, then once you accomplish that thing, you can move on to the next. So if God is most important, if your faith is most important, uh, or you know would say first, then it makes it easy to check that box off and move on to the next thing. For example, well, I went to church today, and so now I can go spend time with my family and I don't have to let my faith or my relationship with Jesus affect my relationship with my family. Hmm. And so if, if everything that we do revolves around Jesus, if, if, we, if Jesus, another way we might say it, if, if Jesus is the lens through which we view all of life, then it informs each of those different areas. We've talked about our, our mission statement, connecting faith to families, communities, and marketplaces. How do we view uh, each of those domains through the lens of faith? Uh, we are Jesus-centered. We want to view everything through the lens of Jesus and how Jesus operate, uh, operated. And what, what I have found is that so much of Christian faith, especially today, uh, it all revolves around Jesus's death through crucifixion and resurrection. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that those things aren't important because right. they are incredibly important. 
Um, but what happens is probably unintentionally, we we ignore the other 21 chapters or the 24 chapters in Matthew where, uh, you know, where Jesus lived and taught us how to live and how to treat people ethically and uh, how to love people and how to extend mercy and grace and all of those kinds of things. Um, and so we, we, we kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater when all we focus on is Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Now, again, incredibly, incredibly important. But I believe that Jesus came not only to save us uh, for uh, eternity future, but also to teach us how to live right here, right now, so that we might have an abundant life. As, as we're told in John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, that's Jesus, have come so that you might have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full. So, so I believe that we are called to live our life with a, a Jesus lens or have all of our life revolve around Jesus's life and his teachings. So it's a, a, kind of an interesting, I, I want to kind of go back for anyone of our generation growing up in the 90s or in the two, early 2000s, the big thing was WWJD. What would Jesus do? They had it on bracelets. They had it on anklets. You know, you could probably stitch it on your shoelaces. I don't know. It was everywhere. And and I think that was kind of a really simple way to view that sort of idea is like if I'm going to do something, if I'm going to uh, uh, make a decision, how would Jesus act in this situation? Is that a little bit of the thinking behind how we view it as, you know, individuals, but also how, how we view it as an organization. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think that I think that one of the issues with WWJD, what would Jesus do? Um, it was a good way to get us to think about Jesus, but it didn't really change much behavior. Right. Uh, I think I heard a statistic one time that the most stolen item uh, during that you know, that phenomenon, I guess, um, the most stolen items, uh, from stores were WWJD bracelets. Um, I feel like Jesus would not do that. Yeah. It was <laughs> kind of antithetical to who he is. Um, and, and so it's a good principle, um, you know, asking what would Jesus do, but if it doesn't change our behaviors, um, and so I, I once heard, somebody say that we need to pickle ourselves in the Gospels. Um, hmm. What I have found is that um, is that what we tend to do theologically, you know, for for those of us who like theology and and you know studying the scriptures and things like that, is what we tend to do is we look uh, to the epistles. So epistles are simply just letters written to either individuals or churches. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Paul, the apostle Paul, wrote 13 or 14 of the epistles. And Paul put language to th- the things that Jesus did. So he he essentially gave us doctrine. Um, so So... Paul was the first one to give us in word form the doctrine of grace. Jesus never once speaks of grace, but he lives grace. 
Right. And so what we tend to do is we look towards the epistles, and, and I absolutely believe that the epistles are um, – that these letters to the church and letters to, to people are God-inspired, that they're Holy Spirit-inspired, that they are uh, authoritative, that they are um, – that they are factual and things like that. Uh, we tend to look to Paul for all of our theology. Oh, I love oh, what rich theology and doctrine we get from Paul. Um, and then we kind of like, oh, yeah, and then there's the Gospels too, which is where Jesus is. And, uh, you know, we kind of use that for, you know, in in seminary and things like that. The Gospels are usually used to help teach Greek and uh, kind of for academic purposes, but when it comes to theology, oh, how rich the theology of Paul was. Right. Um, but here's the thing. Paul is not my Lord. Jesus is. And so I want to study the life of Jesus and uh, learn uh, how he behaved, learn how he acted, and, and maybe a a critique that I have, and I, and I have, I'm, I'm a, I'm guilty of doing this as well. A critique that I have of, of, of the church today, especially those who are taking deep dives into theology, hmm. is that we can get so hung up on the words of theology that we actually don't live out good theology. Uh, theology, great. Uh, and again, I don't mean to insult your intelligence. If you know what theology is, I don't want to. Uh, I'm definitely not an expert yeah. on the subject. So theology uh, is really the study of God. Mm-hmm. It comes from theo, God, ology, study of. So it's the it's the study of God. Um, so I guess you could say that all all conversation is theology because God informs everything. Um, but Jesus is good theology. If if all we have are words and no action to go with it, then we're practicing bad theology. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, you know, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard, uh, you know, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. It does, yeah, you've, you've, we've probably heard those things. I've heard it quoted on... Uh, on TV before. My and, wife is a, a big fan yeah. of that particular line as well. It, it's great. I mean, it's it's timeless whether you're a believer or not. But one of the things uh, that is often overlooked, it says, you know, if, if you could uh, speak with the, uh, I forget, I'm losing it right here, but it basically says, if you don't have love, you can do all these great things, but if you don't have love, you're like a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. You're just making noise. Mm. And so, yes, have good theology, have good doctrine and a good way to articulate it. But if we aren't loving people, if we aren't living out mercy and grace and, and love and forgiveness and compassion and justice and all of these kinds of things, then all of our good theology is really impotent and it, it it lacks power. Well, I think from a, uh, you know, so sort of an outside view of church or uh, church going people, and I'm certainly not trying to generalize for everyone that falls into that category, 
there are so many people that you hear about who identify as Christians, who are representing themselves as believers, who are taking actions that are completely, you know, opposite of what you would think Jesus would do. And I think that's one of the things that that line kind of came from was how are people uh, actually behaving versus what do they believe is the right way to do things? And your behavior is a lot different than sort of your intention. Your intention could be positive and to do the right thing and to, you know, take a position, whether it's on like a politically charged issue or not, uh, that you think that's the right thing. But the action that you're taking, the behavior you're demonstrating to uh, achieve your goal in that way or in that specific uh, topic is completely contrary to how you think Jesus would actually conduct himself. Absolutely. Um, So if you were to go to the most, you know, I don't know, maybe despised people in the world, I like it at the heart, like, uh, we won't name names, yeah, but we won't. they know who they are. Yeah. <laughs> no, but if you if we were to go to these quote very sinful people mm-hmm. um, and ask them, what do you think about Christians? <laughs> um, uh, a general answer you would get, and uh, they wouldn't necessarily put it in this way. They'd say, "Well, they don't act very Christ-like. <laughs> they don't act." Uh, Gandhi. Oh, well, he's at least a. Uh, this quote is attributed to him, though uh, it's debated whether or not he actually said this or not. He said, I love your Jesus, mm-hmm. but I don't love your Christians. If your Christians behaved like your Jesus, then I would actually follow your Jesus. Yeah. And um, so as followers of Jesus— it should be incredibly insulting. It, it should be the lowest blow that we can receive for someone to say that we aren't acting very Christ-like. It's in the uh, name, Christian. It is. Uh, actually, uh, so in the early church, in the first 10 chapters of, of the book of Acts, um, you hear this, uh, it's a sect, uh, almost of Judaism. Uh, there's like a new religion that's forming, not I don't think it was necessarily intentional, but it's followers of the way because Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. So uh, the early followers of Jesus refer to themselves as the way. But then in chapter 11, um, we hear it says it was it was here that the follow the, the disciples were first referred to as Christians. And Christian literally means a little, Christ. So that means that they were acting so much like Jesus that the unbelieving world started referring to them in mockery, actually. Um, look at those little Christ running around. <laughs> look at uh, those little Christians. Yeah, look at those little Christians. Just, just oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, how beautiful is that? That like that we are so known by the by our Savior. Uh, that we're 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 so known by behaving like our savior that we get called little Christ. So when you ask people uh, what 
what is Jesus like? Today, they often don't say, well, they're like Christians. <laughs> um, Jesus was referred to as a friend of sinners. And today, if you were to ask, quote, sinners, they'd say, uh, yeah, we don't really like those guys. Right, yeah. Uh, Jesus had a habit of ticking religious people off and being a friend of sinners. I heard somebody say this, and I was like, that's fantastic. He said, so to some degree, if we aren't ticking off religious people, we aren't being very Christ-like. <laughs> um, yeah, it's probably true, though. I mean, I, again, as a as somebody with a, a little bit of an outside perspective, I'm certainly exposed to church a lot, and I'm obviously working actively on this project like the rest of us. Uh, I, I don't have as much studied sort of background, but I can absolutely relate to that same feeling because it's from the time that I spent uh, in the church as a kid and as a teenager, I certainly understand the expectations of how you should act. And I think a lot of people do, but that doesn't come out in reality. We kind of leave that at church or we leave that in our you know, life group or with our friends, and then we encounter a stranger. And instead of treating a stranger like we treat our friends and our family with love and kindness and compassion and patience, you know, to uh, to try and maybe relate to and understand their situation, we jump straight to judgment and uh, and many other things. And I would even argue that we don't even do that with our family a lot of times and those that we love. That's true. And Je so what Jesus does, he comes on the scene and he takes love to a whole nother level. Uh, and he tries, like, he doesn't try, he reframes scripture, uh, like the Old Testament. He So we're given 10 commandments, right? Um, I've heard that. Yeah. and <laughs> And so... When Jesus comes on the scene, all of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which are essentially the religious elite of his day, they come on this. Uh, Jesus comes on the scene, and they keep trying to find ways to trick him into saying something that they can, you know, charge against him. Because yeah, soundbite culture. Yeah, these these religious folks are getting jealous of Jesus's success in ministry, and he's starting to reframe what the power structures should be. Yeah. Uh, and so God always has a plan and men, we generally screw that plan up. Um, it happened in the garden. Mm. God gave us tons of freedom and we snatched it for power. Like we, we, you know, we put ourselves in prison. Uh, and so I, you know, I've heard um, that, this this analogy that God gave us the law, uh, essentially to keep us from dying. I heard somebody tell a story that they once had, um, they lived on a very busy street and they wanted their kids to go out and be able to play and, and those kinds of things. Um, and one day their son was out in the front and like a ball got knocked into the street or something and he went out to go get it and almost got hit by a car. He said, and so because we loved our son and we didn't want him to die, we put a fence in place. And he said, so that's essentially what the law was originally given for. It was a fence to keep us from being killed, from, from killing ourselves and for loving God and loving others. Mm -hmm. What religion does, though, is it puts a fence in front of that fence so that you don't get to 
that exterior fence. And then it puts another fence in front of that fence. So it's, it's laws on top of laws on top of laws so that we don't disobey the ultimate law, right? Yeah. And, and, and so instead of, what, uh, instead of having a yard that we can play in, what we end up creating is a prison. And that's what religion is. Uh, religion is a prison where it's uh, where we've built walls up to keep us from harming ourselves, but in the process we end up harming ourselves. And there is great freedom in Jesus. Jesus, um, so so they, again they try to t- uh, trick him. Jesus, what are the what of all the laws? And you, you can look at. Um, all of the laws that are listed in the Old Testament, and a lot of those are man-made laws. Um, there's something, I want to say there's like 613 laws. Um, you know, some of them are like, don't cook a baby calf in its mother's milk. You know, super applicable stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, laws for everything, like what to do, I mean, for incredibly strange topics, like what to do if a woman is on her menstrual cycle, uh, what to do for, um, uh, you know, if you have like a sore, like what, and, and it turns a certain color, what do you, what do you do for that? Like it's it, like, there's some insane things, you know, um, even uh, this is going to sound crude, but there's even laws and things you're supposed to do for wet dreams and stuff like that. It's, it's insane. And so, so these, these, uh, Pharisees, uh, and Sadducees come and they say, you know, what is the greatest law? And Jesus says, uh, the greatest law is love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And the second, which is easy, uh, which is, uh, equal to it is to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and all the prophets rest on these two things. Love God, love people. And Jesus was the perfect, like he perfectly lived that out. He loved God well. He submitted, though he was God, he submitted to God, to, to the Father. He also comes not to be served, or not to, yeah, not to be served, but to serve. Um, he takes on this position as a slave in um, Philippians chapter 2. It says that we should have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, who being in the very nature God, so though he was God, he did not consider equality to God as something to cling to. Instead, he took on the humble position of a slave and even to death, death on a cross. And it was at this humility and this um, submission to God and to people that it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because God raised him to the place of highest honor. That one day, every creature above the earth and on the earth and below the earth will bow to Jesus. And so we see, uh, we might call it this upside down kingdom or this upside down power structure where Jesus says that the least will be the greatest and the greatest will be the least. And if you want to gain your life, you need to give your life up. And and so Jesus just comes on the scene and he completely, completely annihilates uh, man-made power structures. He completely annihilates uh, divisions between uh, 
slaves and masters, men and women, Jews and pagans, like uh, he, he completely tears all of these things down and says, you are made in my image and you are made by God for a purpose, with a purpose. And I want to redeem that in you. And so he gives his life, uh, we're told, uh, as a ransom for many. Jesus doesn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Um, and so what we, t- like, what we can tend to do is we, we, we see God through our own eyes rather than seeing God through the eyes of Jesus and through the life of Jesus. And it creates this ugly picture of who God really is. This violent, retributive, angry God who, uh, who just uh, is desiring to pour his wrath out on us. That's, that's often how we view God. Um, but Jesus comes on the scene and he says things like, Hey, figure out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? Well, let me tell you a story. There's this hated guy named, who's a Samaritan. uh, And he showed more love. Uh, He, 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 again, completely changes all the power structures. Every, every thing that we could think, uh, he turns upside down. Um, I'm thinking of... uh, the B attitudes. You've probably have you heard of the B attitudes, Greg? I don't uh, think so. Uh, it comes on the Sermon of the Mount, which is Jesus's most prolific sermon, uh, and he says these kinds of things. Just listen to how upside down this is from maybe power structures that we have today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness and justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evils against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so, what Jesus is doing is he's giving blessing or power to the poor, to those who mourn, who are meek or humble. Uh, for those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness and justice, for those who are merciful, for those who are pure in heart, for the peacemakers. Um, And today, uh, like if we were to say this, we might say like, blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who are, are, who are uh, comforted. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are those who are retributive. Blessed are those who get what they want. Blessed are those who go to war. And if, and if you could see my face, you could tell that I'm not super into this version of it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody's really into this version of it. No. 
And, and so nobody would ever say like, yeah, blessed are those who go to war. Blessed. Like, no, like nobody says those things outright, but the way that we operate and behave is what make Christianity so unattractive and so unchristlike. We put forth such a almost anti-Christ life that it's unattractive to people. And I believe that the love of Christ, the life of Christ, and the example of Christ, that we as followers of Jesus live is what should draw people in. Instead, we turn to um, what I believe are very real things, and we use these, uh, so like hell. We use hell as the chief motivator to win people to Jesus. Now, I believe in the existence of hell. I think that it's, it's a good motivator for me to, to operate with urgency and with love. Right. Um, but so much of our life, uh, so much of the way that we operate is what I would call like uh, extractionism. Like, hey, we need to save you so that uh, you can vacate this place and one day go live in heaven. Now, heaven, great benefit. <laughs> um, That's a decent incentive. Yeah. I want uh, Francis Chan in his book, Crazy Love, um, he posed this question and it destroyed me. He asked this question, this hypothetical question. He says, if you could go to heaven and everything was as you imagined, all of your family was there, all of your friends, there was no more hurt, there was no more pain, there was no more suffering, no more tears, any of those kinds of things. If you could go there, but Jesus wasn't there, would you still want to go? And my answer was, yeah, I'd still want to go. And what, what it opened my eyes to was the, the reality that I didn't really love Jesus. I didn't really want to behave like him. I just didn't want to go to hell when I died. You're kind of looking at it like pros and cons, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I definitely don't want to go to hell, and I mm -hmm. definitely want to see everyone I love again. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, when given the option between those two, it's an easy choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I asked my dad that question, and he aggravated me. He said, well... It wouldn't be heaven if Jesus weren't there. And I was like, well, yeah, I, I get that, but that's not the point of the question. Right. And, but like and now, like, you know, seeing the heart of my dad and things like that, his, his point's well taken. And, <laughs> and that's the reality. It wouldn't be heaven without Jesus. I believe that any place that has uh, the absence of Jesus is hell. Um, now, you know, that does not mean that I don't believe that there's an afterlife uh, that I, that I, it doesn't mean that I don't believe that there's an afterlife in a place uh, of eternal separation. Mm -hmm. But again, I, that's not my primary motivator. It, it is a, again, uh, it's my motivator to remind me of the urgency um, that I need to have when sharing the gospel and loving people. Um, but ultimately, I don't want to save people from hell. I want to win people to Jesus. Right. And I think that that's a, there's a huge distinction there. And it, it, 
if if we're honest, it really changes the perspective of how we live and how we operate and and the things that we try to draw people towards. And correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, but this is, I think, maybe the first conversation that I've ever mentioned hell. Uh, the I think existence so. of hell. Pretty sure. Um, but in uh, I hope I don't regret saying this, but we've talked a lot about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is, is like I, and we've talked about this. I want you to believe what I believe. I want you to fall in love with Jesus as I have fallen in love with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want you to do that just because you don't want to go to hell. I mean, that is like a common way that it's, you know, let's say pitched to people. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got people standing outside of uh, Planned Parenthood with signs that say you're going to burn in hell, you know. Yeah. And that's obviously they're trying to get their message across, but I think it's the wrong way to go about it. That doesn't that doesn't make me feel uh, like the people that are sharing that message are kind or compassionate or loving you know, that in my time of need or in the person who's walking into that place in their time of need is going to receive the the kindness and compassion that they might need in a, you know, in a really difficult situation. So I think it's easy to to uh, to look at it from, you know, that perspective, like, well, you don't want to you don't want to screw up, you know, scare tactics sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I want my children to obey me because they love me, not because they're afraid they're going to get punished. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, I, I don't think that this is ignoring uh, the – this is ignoring the topic of hell. But Jesus says that the world will know that we are his followers by our love for one another. I think that should that should speak for itself, right? Um, it, and it's true in Proverbs. It says that fear is the beginning of wisdom. And I would maybe say it this way: fear might be a good place to begin, but it's a terrible place to end. Yeah. Um, I believe it's in the book of James. It says uh, there is no fear in love. Because perfect love drives out all fear. And I use this as an example. Um, Growing up, I had a fear of my dad. Mm. Not because he was a scary man, but just he commanded a lot of respect. Right. Um, As I've grown older in my relationship with him, um, he's still my dad. I still have an insane amount of respect and, and adoration for him. But I don't fear him. I'm not afraid of him. Uh, my fear has turned to wisdom, which has turned to love. I mean, like, which is, I mean, I, I've always loved him, but like, it's my, the basis of my relationship is love, not fear anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it just, I think that it's so important that, that we really, really look at the way that Jesus lived his life the way that he um, interacted with here's what I, here's what I have found. And we, we tend to do this opposite. Jesus was incredibly compassionate and empathetic with the most sinful of people. 
Um, in his days, uh, that would be tax collectors. Tax collectors were like the probably the modern day equivalent of the the abortion uh, doctor who likes to go in because he just enjoys his job. Like, mm. like you know, maybe that's a, uh, a parallel. Uh, like Jesus showed great love and compassion for uh, tax collectors and prostitutes and um, the unclean of the world. Yeah. And he was most harsh with the religious elite. And we tend to do the opposite. We're very loving and compassionate towards the religious elite or towards yeah. maybe one another, like within the Christian faith, and sure. pretty harsh towards those outside of the church. But even in the words of Paul, Paul says, it's not my responsibility to judge those outside of the church, but it is my responsibility to judge those inside of the church. Um, but we tend to do the opposite. Well, look at the life that they're living. Look at these things, A, B, and C. How could they do such a thing? They're terrible people, blah, blah, blah. Um, but Jesus says, you know, before you look at that speck in somebody else's eye, you might want to take care of the log that's in yours. Yeah. Jesus says uh, there's a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. Uh, and by the, the law, uh, she deserved the death penalty. Jesus comes along and says, hey, you who is without sin, why don't you cast the first stone? We all have sin. We're like, uh, we should not hate people because their sin looks different than ours. Um, we are all broken people who are in need of a savior. Uh, and that savior, I believe, is Jesus. Um, and... In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And here's what I have found a lot of times. We like to claim Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. But we cannot claim Jesus as our Savior until we claim him as Lord of our lives. Uh, Lord is a, uh, uh, I guess, kind of a governmental word. <laughs> um, if you watch any movies, you know, about like the Renaissance period or things like that, there mm -hmm. were lords and ladies and, um, lords were, were, were people who uh, were rulers over a certain land and you, pledged your allegiance to those people mm -hmm. uh, and you pledged your life to them and you, you gave everything to them. Um, and uh, good Lords would, you know, provide back for their people. Bad Lords would not do that. Uh, Jesus, I believe is a good Lord. God is a good God. Um, and he, he comes in and he gives us the world and all he asks for is our allegiance to him. And so when we, when we submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus and who he is, it allows us to claim him as savior. Um, and, and I think that that's so important and something that we and the church don't do really well is submitting our lives to Jesus, not, not American Jesus, not, uh, mm -hmm. you know, maybe from, uh, is it Talladega Nights? Not, you know, well, you can pray to whichever Jesus you want. 
You can pray to baby Jesus, <laughs> bearded Jesus, teenage Jesus. I don't care. And, and like that, that's a funny line from that movie. Um, but man, if you would look at Christianity today, there are so many different Jesuses that we worship. Yeah. Um, Republican Jesus, Democrat Jesus, uh, uh, reformer Jesus, radical Jesus, yeah. uh, angry Jesus, gentle Jesus. Um, and man, we, we need to, we need to get in the scriptures, uh, in the gospels, especially and uncover who this, like the real Jesus is. And what I have found, my, my, my life has been so transformed. My politics, the way that I handle money, the way that I treat other people, the way that I view violence, the way that I view war, the way that I view life and death, all of these things have changed because of the way that I view Jesus and the way that I understand Jesus as he is presented in the Bible. So, man, there's a lot there. I could talk for days and days, weeks and weeks, years and years uh, about Jesus. But and, and that's kind of the hope is that we just become people who are so in love with Jesus that he is the center of everything that we do in every way that we act and everything that we uh, say and do and, and how we behave would be centered around Jesus. Well, we'll spend at least uh, 40 minutes talking about something just like that about every week, just like this. Um, before we uh, kind of conclude and wrap up today, we have a couple of corrections uh, from stuff from the from previous episodes here. Uh, two quick uh, scripture references. Zach quoted, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, not Luke, I believe, as was stated previously, right? Yeah, my bad. It's all good. And to clarify, I'm not correcting you. You're correcting you because <laughs> I certainly don't know the correct answer. Um, also, uh, the story of the entire household getting baptized is Acts chapter 16, not 17. Is that right? Yep. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we're not perfect, uh, but anytime we can clarify and correct any inaccuracies like that, uh, we want to we want to make sure we do that. And, and if anybody catches those, please let us know, uh, you know, if we're if we're trying to strive for doing things differently and doing things the right way and correctly and accurately, and we want to actually live that out yeah. if we can. And we, yeah, we definitely want to give uh, correct information and not lead people astray. And, um, and, and I would, I would challenge anyone, uh, to, to go through and, and, and really look at the scriptures that we quote in here and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause getting into the word is really important. And a lot of times I'm quoting scripture just from memory. And so I often will misquote um, or not say it verbatim, or I might use the wrong scripture reference. Um, and um, Well, which version are you quoting? You know, yeah, all that exactly. stuff. Yeah, it's hard to, hard to get it totally exact. Yeah, so um, we're certainly open to, to dialogue and things like that. And we, we appreciate your grace and understanding when it comes to those things. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, well, this is, uh, our, again, our first in our value series. We're going to have four more of these where we talk about uh, the things that are going to inform how we try to operate as an organization and as a, a coffee house as well as a business and hopefully get these values uh, built into every aspect of Harvestgate. So it's been great talking about this one. We look forward to chatting with you more about uh, discipleship and a community and how we uh, want to build out 
what we do and, and how we how we roll. Amen. All right. Well, thanks, Zach. It's been fun. Follow us on social media at Harvestgate Network. There are several ways you can engage with us and support the Harvestgate Network at harvestgate.org. You can subscribe to the Harvestgate podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you're as excited as we are about this project, please consider supporting us by sharing, joining our prayer team, or donating on our website. Thanks for listening to the Harvestgate podcast, connecting faith to families, communities, and marketplaces.